0: Welcome to Bridging Chicago, a podcast that aims to connect our listeners to Chicago's business, community, cultural, and charity leaders, brought to you by SATC Solution Center L3C. Hello, and thanks for tuning in to this episode of Bridging Chicago. I'm Savannah Roundtree, the law clerk at SATC, and today I'm joined by my civil procedure professor from Loyola University School of Law, Spencer Waller. Professor Waller, thank you for joining us today.
1: Hi, Savannah, thanks for having me.
0: So um, usually a podcast would start uh, maybe with a brief bio, um, but this podcast is sort of an exploration of your bio, so I think we're going to go ahead and jump right in. Um, I was doing the research for this, and you have a very interesting background, and it seems as though you have done far more things than I really think you should have had time to do. So. You were not a law professor for your entire life?
1: Nope. I I practiced law one form or another for eight years before I went into full-time teaching.
0: Okay, so what were you doing in the eight years before you started teaching?
1: Um, Mostly just couldn't keep a job, so I hopped from place to place. (laughs) Um, So I grew up in Chicago. Um, I grew up on the north side, about a mile from Wrigley Field, and lifelong Cub fan. And my pattern in life has been to sort of leave Chicago, come back, leave, come back. Leave, come back. So, a place to come back to. Yeah. And so I went to a college in Ann Arbor okay. and I went to law school at Northwestern. Mm-hmm. And when I got out through a v- variety of reasons, um, I ended up uh, clerking for the Seventh Circuit for one year. Okay. And it wasn't my original plan, and there were all kinds of just forks in the road. Um, during law school, I clerked for the Federal Trade Commission. Okay. My, one of my laws, besides civil procedures, antitrust, yep. and consumer protection. And so, had the Reagan administration not gutted the Federal Trade Commission, um, I probably would have gone to work for them if I could have, either in okay. Chicago or in D.C. My second summer, I worked for a great firm based in New York, Kay Scholler, Fearman, Hayes & Handler, it's now part of Arnold & Porter. Okay. Uh, great practice, a lot of antitrust, a lot of really interesting litigation, and uh, they were nice enough to make me an offer, I had accepted, and in my third year of law school, my father got sick. He subsequently passed away, and I was looking for a way to stick around. So I stayed in Chicago and was able to, at the last minute, with the help of everyone from my rabbi (laughs) to my professors (laughs) to my parents' friends,
0: Mm -hmm. I was
1: able to uh, interview for a couple different clerkships. One of them worked out. And in the course of that year, I saw an ad on the Bolton board in the copy room (laughs) for the honors program of the U.S. Department of Justice in the antitrust division. And I thought to myself that I I like the people at the firm, I like New York just fine, but I wasn't comfortable working for a big law firm at that stage of my career. And I explored the honors program, I was accepted, and I was able to start in Washington, D.C., and this would have been in the fall of 1983.
0: Okay. Yeah, that's what I noticed um, that you were working for the Justice Department, and the move from, You were doing some antitrust, and then was it a move back to Chicago where you were working on the uh, Chicago Strike Force? So, yeah, so two
1: things were going on. When I was in D.C., I was working on very interesting issues but not doing interesting things. Okay. So early 80s, Reagan administration, not a lot of action in antitrust outside of the – Criminal prosecution of cartels, which is okay. a political thing, but that wasn't what I was working yeah. on. I was working on cool stuff that was going nowhere, involving <laughs> international companies, and I. It was great experience. I worked with smart people. I learned how to take uh, the equivalent of depositions, pre-pre uh, complaint civil um, depositions. Uh, but but our cases typically didn't go anywhere because that administration had very conservative free market views, and you really needed stunningly high levels of proof to bring anything outside of routine price fixing cases. Right. I had the thrill of my first pleading in federal court being a Supreme Court brief, where I wrote, that. you know, drafted a little <laughs> tiny part of the first draft
0: uh-huh, Just of a, a casual Supreme Court brief. <laughs> yeah, you
1: read it in civil procedure. It was Matsushita.
0: Okay, um,
1: about summary judgment and some other things. And after a couple years, uh, I wanted to get the skills to be a good lawyer, to be a good trial mm-hmm. lawyer, because I thought that's where my career would be. Yeah. And, and I did come back. So once you're in the Justice Department, I already had a background check. I already had a security clearance. So, uh, you know, so I was inside the Justice Department. It made it mm-hmm. easier to move yeah. within the Justice sure. Department. And so I interviewed with the Organized Crime Strike Force And at the time, they were physically separate from the U.S. Attorney's Office. So instead of reporting to the local U.S. attorney, uh, we reported to the head of our section in Washington. And there were these field offices all over the country, and they offered me different postings in, like, Cleveland and um, Brooklyn and and Mm -hmm. some other places, and eventually an opening in Chicago came up. And I thought, okay, the universe is speaking to me. And around 1985, (laughs) I both came home and started working for the Organized Crime Strike Force of Justice uh, down the, essentially down the floor, you know, one floor down from the, uh, the regular U.S. Attorney's Office okay. in the federal courthouse.
0: And, you know,
1: within three weeks, I was standing up in front of a jury giving an opening statement in a criminal you know.
0: Real crash course in the uh, criminal litigation field.
1: Yep, they there. had me doing things I had no business doing, and I did the best I could, and I got better over time.
0: Yeah, that's sort of what I hear about working for the federal government—they just <laughs> throw you in there, and uh.
1: it's a—it's a great experience. So yeah. you know, I spent a total of four years with Justice between the two postings, mm-hmm. um, and I got to do things that my friends in uh, at least at the big law firms had no yeah. uh, no way of doing. Uh, I did hundreds of hours in the grand jury. On the antitrust side, I did these wow. civil depositions. I tried cases. I worked on appeals. Uh, I negotiated guilty pleas. I appeared in front of the chief judge on grand jury matters and grants of immunity, which are in the news these days yeah. uh, for, for other reasons. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I was having a good time and I was really felt like I was wearing the white hat. I was yeah. not prosecuting mopes who were getting caught with minor amounts of drugs or mm-hmm. something like that. I was prosecuting. Yeah by and large, career criminals who made a conscious decision to prey on the weakest and most vulnerable people in our society.
0: Oh, yeah, sounds like some really interesting work. That's quite, also quite a jump from working in the antitrust division before, which I want to back up to just a little bit, because I know that antitrust is one of your favorite topics, and you're the director of the Institute of Consumer Antitrust Studies at Loyola. And so I just want to tell everyone what antitrust is to our listeners. And so would a uh, sort of layman's understanding of antitrust be stopping monopolies and for, like, business competition?
1: Sure. um, I think uh, in... Most of the rest of the world, they call it competition law, which makes okay. far more sense. It's just a <laughs> historical accident that the cartels and monopolies in the United States were organized in the form of a trust in the late 19th century. And as a result, the law in the US is called antitrust. Okay. Everywhere else in the world, it's about competition. It's exactly what you say.
0: Mm-hmm. It's
1: about preventing monopolies and dominant firms from abusing their power. Think Google, Microsoft, right. Facebook, Standard Oil, if you go back far enough. Uh, preventing cartels, which are agreements between competitors, which raise price or cut production, which is exactly right. the same thing in the marketplace, mm-hmm. preventing them from stealing money from consumers by rigging bids, raising price. And then the third part of it is protecting competition by preventing mergers that are likely to harm the market if you let them go through. Okay. And there's hundreds of mergers that are in the paper you know, every day right. that you can read about. Yeah.
0: And so you were working in the foreign commerce section of antitrust, yes. is that correct? And so how how does the foreign aspect play in there?
1: Well, at the time, it was relatively unusual to apply our antitrust laws to international businesses.
0: Right. That's what I was assuming.
1: um, But that's really changed. So in the Matsushita case, where I worked on a very small part of the Supreme (laughs) Court brief for the government, it was a long-running private antitrust case between two – US television manufacturers and the entire Japanese electronics industry, and the allegation was they were collectively trying to underprice and drive out the US firms. So after 18 years of litigation, uh, the case made it to the Supreme Court as to whether summary judgment was appropriate or not on most but not all of the claims in the case. And in that instance, the Supreme Court asked DOJ for the views of the government and Mm -hmm. of course. They, right. all, they always respond when asked. Most of the time, we were investigating, in terms of the things I worked on, allegations that a U.S. industry of a consumer good were conspiring with their foreign competitors in Asia okay. to limit prices and imports. I also worked on different merger investigations where a foreign firm was acquiring a U.S. firm, mm-hmm. or vice versa. And it was sort of unusual back then, and it's utterly commonplace now because yeah. of the global economy.
0: Yeah, I would assume that's getting picking up a lot more now than it was in the 80s, especially with all of the uh, trade wars that are going on at the moment. I would yep. assume that's an uh, area rife with litigation at
1: the moment. It is. And one other thing that we did because of the way the U.S. Depar- uh, the US government, the executive branch, is organized is in the international trade area, there are a lot of issues such as should we limit imports for national security reasons, something that's you mm-hmm. know, quite in the news right. today. There's no single department that's in charge of that. And you get in these interagency task forces oh, uh, okay. to help make presidential policy. And we were the voice for consumers and for competition. Okay. And one time we were talking about, no, you really shouldn't limit copper imports in the name of national security because... It doesn't seem to help on national security. It's likely to just drive prices up and benefit right. the copper producers. That was the sort of thing that we also got involved in.
0: Okay. Yeah, that's a, a lot more broad ranging than I was thinking than just, you know, no monopolies. you never think about, you know, now we've got security interests involved as well. So you've moved back to Chicago. You're working on the strike force. What's next?
1: Well, um, the proverbial fork in the road, again, uh, there was a point at which I had to decide if I both wanted to be sort of a career government person and a career criminal uh, prosecutor. Right. And I was enjoying it, but it was very, very stressful.
0: Yeah, Um, I would imagine lots of long days, pretty draining material you're working with.
1: It was, and I I felt good about what I was doing, and Mm -hmm. obviously we took our, uh, best way to say it, our, our responsibilities very seriously. about both not bringing charges unless we really thought we could prove someone guilty beyond a reasonable yep. doubt. And it's exciting.
0: Mm-hmm. And then
1: you, you get to the sentencing phase and you have to ask a judge to put even a bad person away for 15 years, and then I'd go home and get sick, even though I did my job and I was proud of it and it was very stressful. Yeah, I can and, imagine. Uh, I decided that uh, you know, I really didn't want to be a full-time criminal person. It's living in an exciting but really morally compromised environment and even as a spectator. Uh, it's 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 draining yeah and so I was looking around uh, to enter uh, practice with a firm and I was five years out of law school I had tried I don't remember eight or nine cases argued a couple of appeals written a couple of briefs that made it to the Supreme Court and I wasn't looking to be a partner and I wasn't looking to be in charge of client files and stuff but I wanted to be treated commensurate with my experience and not just um, a big firm that had a set idea yeah. of this is what you do in year one, and this is what you do in year two, and year five. And I looked around and I, I found a great small firm that had terrific clients, and I knew people from both the federal government, federal government, FTC, and other other walks of life. And it was called Freeborn and Peters. They happened to be in the same building where <laughs> yes, we're recording I'm
0: familiar this. familiar with the name, And location.
1: I, I was there uh, for three and a half years, and I had a thoroughly enjoyable time many of the stories you've heard already in civil procedure last year.
0: Yes, many a story, I'm sure. Um, so that's still in Chicago, but then I notice you your first professor job is at Brooklyn Law, and I imagine that's not in Chicago.
1: Nope. <laughs> no, it isn't, um, and it's pre-hipster Brooklyn, so it was just Brooklyn I'm back sure. then.
0: Well, for those of you that don't know, uh, Professor Waller is also called the antitrust hipster among a few uh, Twitter profiles, I believe. So I guess you're ahead of your time there as well. <laughs>
1: uh, that's mostly intended as an insult by <laughs> people who are my professional friends but disagree profoundly with my views. <laughs> um, if you saw, if you could see what I look like and how I dress, uh, hipster wouldn't be the first thing you think of. Um, I actually had my first teaching job as an adjunct you know, just on the side when okay. I was a full-time prosecutor and then at, um, uh, at the law firm, just teaching one night a week a little seminar on international antitrust, the, the stuff that i had been mm-hmm. doing in D.C., uh, at Chicago-Kent. Okay. And along right the way, screen. I wrote an article here or there, but clearly I was working at more than 100 percent
0: right. during the day
1: <laughs> and then cramming this extra stuff in on weekends, evenings, and,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and you know, one night a week down at the law school. And uh, that's when I got the teaching bug. And I hit another fork in the road where I had to decide things are going well at the firm. It's likely they're going to invite me to stay. Um, Nothing is for sure. At some point, if I'm going to go on the market for law teaching, which is a crazy market um, we can talk about if you care, um, this was a good time. And uh, I I tested the waters. In year one, I uh, wasn't so, so successful. I had the opportunity for a callback at the University of Mississippi and never having set foot in the state of Mississippi, I didn't think that was a good use of their time or mine. (laughs) So I stayed at the firm and year two, I had a a broader range of options Um, and I always cared more about the location of where I'd be teaching than whether the school was ranked this high or or above or below. And uh, Brooklyn was the, at the time, the only school that I'd gotten all the way to the end of the process. And uh, they they made me an offer, and that would have been in the fall of, at the very end of 1989, and I joined their faculty in 1990.
0: Okay. So just a little bit about uh, the law professor market. What is it based off of articles you've written, more experience? I don't really know how professors of law get chosen. Where
1: professors come from. Yeah. Um, There's an organization in in Washington that's kind of like our lobby group, our trade association, called the Association of American Law Schools. One of the things they do is run an annual hiring market for new professors. Okay. So it's a centralized, now it's web-based. It obviously Mm -hmm. used to be on paper. Um, But it's a centralized website where all people who are interested in trying their hand fill out a standardized one or two page profile. Okay. And it goes to all schools that are members. There are about 200 schools that are accredited mm-hmm. members of, of, of ALS. And the hiring committees of each of these schools uh, flip through anywhere from 600 to 1,000 of these resumes. Wow. Uh, and again, you narrow it down by what subjects you're yeah, most interested in, what parts of the country you're most interested in, what you're not interested mm-hmm. in. Um, and they, uh, the schools invite you to, for these short preliminary interviews. Okay. Um, and it takes place in Washington in the fall, three days worth if, if you're that popular. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think I ever had more than six or seven uh, of these interviews, but you know, if you're a superstar, you can probably get 20, 25 interviews at schools. That's and for one plane ticket and one set of hotels, you just run around this gigantic, right. um, I think it's a Marriott or a Sheraton, sure. uh, back and forth, talking to as many schools as, as you want. And then the hiring committees hopefully read your stuff, mm-hmm. think about their curricular <laughs> needs, Think about diversity. Think about
0: uh, right.
1: you as a person. And um, uh, if they like what they see, they invite you back, usually for a day and a half callback, where you have to make presentations to the faculty about your scholarship. Usually you meet with the students. You usually meet with the deans. And then at some point, the whole faculty argues about uh, who are their top candidates and make offers accordingly. Sure. And so those are t- technically recommendations to the dean.
0: Right, OK. But
1: Generally speaking, the dean follows what the faculty does unless the dean thinks there's something, say, discriminatory or underhanded going on. Otherwise, they're happy to follow those recommendations.
0: So sort of starts off as a self-selecting process. You decide, I would like to be a law professor and I think I would be good at teaching these subjects. Well, yeah,
1: I mean, it's, it's really, mm-hmm. you can't, can't make anybody right. apply yeah. who doesn't want to. And, um, you know, I, like I said, I had the mm-hmm. bug. I wanted to flip that. I want Instead of doing 5% teaching and 100%, you know, practice, <laughs> uh-huh. I wanted to flip it and really yeah. have the focus be on the teaching and the scholarship and from time to time work uh, perhaps as a consultant or an expert okay. if that opportunity rose. And that's your way in. And, you know, Brooklyn was great. Um, yeah. it, I was dating... Um, the woman who I was later engaged to and still married to, and she does theatrical marketing. So when I said, you know, honey, I'm thinking about taking this job in New York. Are you comfortable with moving to New York? Because we hadn't been dating that long. She said, (laughs) well, she said two things. She said, um, first, it's not like we're going to Iowa. And then she said, (laughs) but not on spec. And she made this gesture where she tapped on a certain finger on her left hand. And it all worked out.
0: Smart lady. (laughs) Yeah, so I'm gonna name drop a little bit because Professor Waller let drop earlier in our conversation that his wife does the marketing for Hamilton, and um, we here in the studio had to sort of take a moment to ourselves because uh, that's insane.
1: <laughs> she's very good at her job, and she's been working in the in her field almost as long as I have in in mine, and she's worked on many many uh, touring productions, uh, some of which have been great successes, and others, you know, things okay. that you haven't heard of. And,
0: so do you get tickets to go see Hamilton whenever you want, or are they just <laughs> I'm, still I'm, difficult I'm, to get? I'm, I a, hear I'm, a very, <laughs> I'm a very
1: lucky spouse. Uh, right now the show is still in demand in Chicago and in the yeah. other cities where the touring companies are crisscrossing the country.
0: Yeah, I hear even the actors have a hard time getting tickets. <laughs> so, um, While you were in Brooklyn, were you working on any cases still, or just solely teaching?
1: Uh, so, you know, I was a very junior professor at the time. I mm-hmm. was untenured and my real job was to figure out how to teach first antitrust and international trade and later civil procedure. Mm-hmm. I didn't teach that till probably year five or six or seven. Okay. Uh, somebody went on sabbatical and our course at that time, Civ Pro at Brooklyn, was two semesters. And the woman who was one of the real giants of the field was just gone in the spring and mm-hmm. I had to teach. She had already taught the personal jurisdiction. Subject matter jurisdiction, the dreaded Erie mm-hmm. doctrine, all that stuff, and that's what she loved and then I had this uh, second half where I had to cover all of the litigation process from the filing of a complaint through enforcing uh, a verdict from uh, from a judge or a jury, mm-hmm. so you know really that is a daunting task to yeah. develop new <laughs> courses uh, where you don't know a lot, you know a little more than your students mm-hmm. but obviously uh, you can't let that show, and then again, unless you continue writing, they're not going to keep you at some point yeah. uh, i Worked at two different schools, Brooklyn and Loyola, which are pretty forgiving. And you know, obviously, if somebody has a personal problem or a health issue, and there's a year where they don't do as much as they can, you know, we get that. Hmm. Um, but if you don't, over the course of the time you're there, do what you're supposed to, you're not going to get tenure. Sure. So in the early years, um, you know, that was my focus. I was still technically of counsel to Freeborn and Peters because there were a couple little matters I had to finish up for them because. Um, would have been bad for the client. And also, I had a couple clients who were actually my own at a small level. And that was a transition arrangement. While I was there, I later transitioned to become of counsel, by coincidence, to Kay Scholler, the firm I had been a summer associate. So I essentially (laughs) skipped being the associate and the partner and went straight to of (laughs) counsel. They had a wide variety of antitrust clients. They did not have a any foreign offices at the time. I don't know the answer if they do now, I assume they do uh, as part of Arnold and Porter. But part of what I did was give them a lot of advice as to the EU antitrust implications of things uh, that they were working on. They had plenty of lawyers who knew more antitrust than I ever will, Mm -hmm. but I had the European expertise where I could issue spot and say, don't worry about that, worry about this, let's go find a lawyer in Brussels who can really take care of this. Sure. So I didn't do a lot of Big time consulting. I didn't do any expert witnessing that I can recall when I was in Brooklyn. I handled two appeals in the Second Circuit on very limited international litigation issues where I could really never take a district court case with discovery and pleadings. Right. But write an appellate brief, show up and give an argument. Okay. I did a couple of those over the 10 years I was there.
0: Okay. So a real flip from your previous Very much so. uh, 105% work. Yeah, <laughs> and I,
1: I you know, I liked I really liked practicing law. Yeah. I love being a teacher, but I enjoyed practicing law. I think I was decent at it and if the the the, the path had simply led me to continue at Freeborn or some other firm, mm-hmm. I, I would I would have been a happy guy, not as happy as I am now though.
0: Yeah. Well, I'm certainly glad you made the switch. I don't know if I would have made it through civil procedure with uh, a different professor. It's not you know, no offense, the most exciting <laughs> topic I've ever heard. But. I get
1: it. I get it. My, my favorite um, evaluation at the end of the year is usually, wow, this was more interesting than I thought it was going to be.
0: <laughs> yeah, so uh, the spot opened up for civil procedure. Did um, someone ask you to take that? Was that something you were looking for to take?
1: It wasn't really a request that the dean indicated they had indeed. Yeah. And that's fine. <laughs> at the time I was not teaching any first-year students, so I had never had the pleasure of meeting people while they were still getting it in their first year. I was, at the time, teaching second and third year okay. students, and it's come to be one of my, my favorite things, which we can talk about now or later, but I had the chance at Brooklyn to teach both halves of civil procedure often in the same year. The sections were very large, up to 125, depending wow. on the year, uh, less occasionally in the night yeah. school and at, at Brooklyn. And then at Loyola until very recently, they have evening part-time programs. Mm -hmm. And both were tremendous. It's really fun to teach a student from the first day of law school and see them develop over the course of a semester or a year, depending on how the course is structured. And you get to do a lot of things that you don't, it's already been done by the time you get somebody in your second and third years, you'll discover, which is, how do you teach a case how do you right. how do you read a case how do you understand a concept whether it's personal jurisdiction or something else mm-hmm. negligence whatever it is not you know from uh, watching it unspool from cases from the civil war to essentially last month with yeah. whatever the supreme court did <laughs> and that's a real skill that is both teaching you how to be a lawyer as well as teaching you the specific thing that you're studying yeah. it almost doesn't matter what line of cases you're reading. You've got to understand that link and how it all cuts back and which things you thought were dead and buried that somehow jumped up around, you know, 1940,
0: 2011,
1: whatever it is. In addition to teaching students, you know, how our litigation system works Mm -hmm. and how to make choices that lawyers make every day. And CivPro is really great at that because besides criminal law, everything else you read in first year is a civil procedure case. It's yeah. a civil procedure case about contracts, or torts, or property, or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, and for the thing that gets me excited about civil procedure, and I get why it doesn't necessarily <laughs> excite the students, is that along the way, you study these rules. But these are not rules like if you switch the light off, the, it, the room will get dark. These are rules that say, well, if you think it's a good idea, you can do A, B, or C. Mm -hmm. And to get students to the point where they can begin to exercise those muscles and make a choice that you're at this stage of a case and you've got five different ways of discovering the facts that help you win the case, what's the best way to the promised land, and get the students to engage Mm -hmm. with each other, not just with you, and start to wrestle with that in a controlled, safe environment, I think is great.
0: Good. Yeah, I would say, you know, it might not have been uh, my favorite class the whole time we were learning it, but it has since been my most useful class because uh, one of the first things I actually did here at the law firm was I had to figure out a diversity problem, which at the time when we were learning it, I sort of thought, like, how can anyone get this wrong? How do they not know where they're doing business (laughs) or where (laughs) they're living? But we had someone who didn't think that they could be litigated in Illinois or thought that they – had complete diversity when they did not. And I could just yeah. pull up my CivPro notes and I told the partners, you know, this is how it goes.
1: Well, you know, it's funny because when I stay in touch with students, usually from their first summer, they say, this stuff is real, you know? So you yeah. thought I was making it up. Yeah. I also like to offer what you've heard me talk about as a lifetime guarantee, which is, you know, any of my students who've had the course in any of this, if they really do their best and they can't uh, get it, I'm always happy to get a phone call and get a new hypothetical to use for yeah. the next year about <laughs> diversity or personal jurisdiction, and help them.
0: Yeah, I, as I texted my study group as soon as that came across my desk. I was like, well, Waller is right, this stuff really does matter. So, um, you know, thank you for <laughs> teaching me that you're very welcome. well. Um, so you're in Brooklyn, you're there for 10 years, and now you're back in Chicago. How do you make that transition?
1: I enjoyed New York. It was exciting. It's, it's a great place. Uh, not surprisingly, I went to a lot of theater, but mm-hmm. we did a lot of other fun things. We lived in Brooklyn for five years and in uh, the village for five years, um, but it never felt like home. It wasn't that I disliked it in any way. I like it. I enjoy going back. Mm-hmm. I travel there frequently. I'm going there next week. But uh, at, my daughter was born in 1996, okay. having a little kid in New York is challenging.
0: I would imagine so. Nothing
1: else, just picture uh, schlepping a uh, three- or four-year-old in a stroller up and down the stairs in and yeah, out of the I'd subway. Yeah, I'd really
0: rather not. And
1: uh, my family's here, and many of my friends that I've grown up with are still here, and I, we had lovely friends in New York. But again, for me, it, it didn't feel like home, and uh, i have been in touch with Loyola All my life at one level. I've had friends who are undergraduates. I've had friends Mm -hmm. who are law students. I I knew a couple of the professors, but not well. And uh, they reached out to me uh, in connection with this Institute for Consumer Antitrust Studies. It had been established in the 90s. uh, There was a professor who was an interim director. Her interests were more on the consumer protection side uh, based on her background and interests. And uh, she had done five or six years of this good work, and they were looking to take the institute to the next level. And we had some conversations, and then Loyola hit a hiring freeze, and they said, you know, are you interested in staying in touch? I said, well, when you have a job, sure, you know, give me a call. <laughs> yeah. And as it turned out, uh, sadly, a very distinguished faculty member passed away, whose area happened to be civil procedure. And the dean said, you know, we can make this work, but you're going to have to do civil procedure and the antitrust okay. stuff. And I'm thrilled. That's, that, yeah. that, that was perfect. If she had said torts, that would have been fine. If she had said anything other than tax, that would have been fine, too. <laughs> and I, I remember I got the final offer. My daughter was three and a half or something. And we were sitting in a movie theater watching Elmo and Grouchland with Mandy Patinkin. And the phone rings my cell phone. And I'm, there are probably six people in the entire theater. And I'm the, the dean is chatting and trying to tell me about this offer, and I'm trying to whisper that I can't
0: talk. I'm yeah. you know, in,
1: in the movies.
0: I'm interrupting Elmo right <laughs> <Yeah>. now.
1: <laughs> so um, when, when you get an offer from a school like Loyola uh, in a place like Chicago to do the work that they do, particularly in an area that relates to social justice, not, not a traditional area of social mm-hmm. justice, uh, where it just it ticked every box that I was looking for. And yeah. so it was not a hard decision. I miss my friends. Uh, but, I, you know, I I, I don't miss uh, living in New York.
0: Yeah, sure. So um, tell me a little bit more about how antitrust and social justice interact. Well,
1: antitrust is primarily about making markets work for the benefit of consumers. Yep. Consumers benefit when they have an array of options in a marketplace, and competition usually provides that. Mm-hmm. You don't want to mess that up. Right. So, if you're looking for a new phone, you, you want to have several options, presumably where they're competing on price, uh, quality, innovation, and whatever else you care about. Right. And if the firms are agreeing to either not offer a feature or uh, cap production to a certain level, or simply s- flat out set the price so that you know, I f- uh, smartphone number one is a $1,000, smartphone number two from a different company is $1,000. And what a coincidence, yeah. three, four, <laughs> and five are all $1,000 that's not good. And similarly, when you have a single firm that dominates the market and can present consumers with a take it or leave it single product Uh because there's nobody else out there. Again, bad for consumers. Uh, Same with mergers that actually take away options from the marketplace if they're competitors and they merge. If Sprint and T-Mobile are allowed to merge, which is a pending deal,
0: there
1: will be one less national cell phone and data carrier. and so that that could that's not automatically illegal, but it could be. Yeah. And so I think consumers benefit, and this is the neat part about the institute: they benefit most when there's a competitive market that provides them reasonable amounts of choices. Mm-hmm. And they also benefit when those choices are presented to them with full and fair information, without fraud and deception, which is the consumer protection half. Right. So it's two halves of the same coin of how you benefit consumers in a market economy. Uh, if if there was a society that had decided to embrace or continue the full socialist model, you don't need antitrust law because you've made a choice to have no right. competition at all. That usually doesn't work out very well. Yeah. Uh, history it hasn't been kind to most of those uh, economic systems, and they tend not to be very democratic uh, either. So, you know, I like the idea that, like so many other parts of Loyola and the law school, and you know, consistent with the Jesuit mission of the university, uh, we're there on the side of social justice, where they're on the side of the small or less powerful entities, I guess. It's not that big is bad. It's that power is bad when it's it's abused.
0: Yeah, yeah. I hadn't thought about that before, because I did wonder a little bit, uh, you know, Loyal's mission is very social justice forward. And uh, I don't necessarily think of that first when I think of antitrust law. But the protection for consumers is really important, as well as smaller businesses as well which yeah. I didn't think about.
1: And, and I think markets are great but they're not magic. And as a result, right. you can't just say let's do nothing as your standard response to any potential problem. Mm-hmm. Big merger? Who cares? You know, monopoly? Who cares? There's mm-hmm. a there's a reasonable theory that a monopoly will eventually unravel if you give it enough time.
0: Sure.
1: Um, but that could be 20, 30 years. I mean, after all, most desktops which still exist and most laptops, which are not Apple, still run Microsoft Windows.
0: Yeah. They correct. have had
1: the dominant share of that part of the market for over 30 years now.
0: And, yeah. and that's
1: fine. But, I mean, but there's cost to that. And I'm very interested in looking at what those costs are um, and, and seeing if we can do better.
0: Yeah. So does antitrust law always happen on this sort of, like, larger national scale? Is there, any? Is there like, local antitrust issues? or?
1: Sure. Sure. Uh, There's also local antitrust enforcement. All 50 states have their own local uh, little FTC and little Sherman Act antitrust laws that are enforced by some part of their attorney general's office. In Illinois, there's an antitrust bureau that has five or six lawyers who are terrific, and they work in partnership with the antitrust bureaus of other state AGs and can form a coalition that really puts together uh, something roughly the same size as the kind of big corporate mm-hmm. firms on the other side. Sure. In Microsoft, it, uh, the case brought by the US was actually the United States plus 20, 19 states and the District of Columbia. Okay. So they pooled their yeah. resources. Pooled
0: their resources for- but,
1: but examples of, the, of more local stuff, yeah. for the federal law to apply, interstate commerce has to be affected, but that's not right. that hard. It could be as little as bid rigging in a road construction. It's quite common that when highways and bridges and stuff are being built or repaired, Uh, it's put out for bids and despite the fact that lots and lots of people go to jail for rigging these bids somehow others in the industry somehow don't get that message and there's still things that are uncovered where uh, road building contracts can be price fixed or bid rigged um contracts for milk for school districts contracts for school buses for school districts that sort of thing is local in nature it's subject yeah, to the federal laws.
0: local, you know, um, in your school. Yeah, and, you <laughs> know, it's really, on.
1: it's really just theft um, from local taxpayers who have to pay more for something right. that they're not really getting value for.
0: Yeah. So has there been any big changes in antitrust law recently that are affecting things in Chicago, things around us? Hmm.
1: That is a good question. I would say, so, so at, a, at a national level, Mm-hmm. THE BIGGEST CHANGE OVER THE LAST 30 YEARS HAS BEEN CHANGES IN THE LAW AND ECONOMICS THAT MANY TIMES I OPPOSE, NOT not ALL OF THEM, BUT HAVE... THE SUPREME COURT PUTS ITS FAITH MORE IN MARKETS NOW THAN IN THE LEGAL REGULATIONS THAT THE ANTITRUST LAWS WERE INTENDED TO PUT ON THOSE MARKETS. OKAY. AND I DON'T THINK THAT'S A GOOD THING, BUT, uh, YOU KNOW, THAT'S SOMETHING THAT REASONABLE PEOPLE CAN DIFFER ON, BUT THAT'S BEEN THE TREND where more often than not the Supreme Court since the late 70s or 80s, consistent with sort of the Reagan era stuff mm-hmm. that I was talking about, uh, they have loosened the antitrust laws more than they have strengthened them. And as a result, uh, you have fewer choices as to uh, phone companies and yeah. other products than you might have in an earlier era. That, but, that affects us all, but it's not specific yeah. to Chicago. There was a, um, there was a case uh, a year or two ago That involved litigation between the rooftop owners outside Wrigley Field and the Cubs where antitrust law was a minor part of that. I thought the
0: uh,
1: rooftop owners had a very strong contract claim, but there was also some antitrust stuff that was unsuccessful in that case. That's that's about as local as you can get. Yeah,
0: yeah. I remember when the rooftop law was going on, but I never would have thought antitrust there. (laughs) But um, I had one more question, which was about – the recent Supreme Court ruling, uh, South Dakota versus Wayfair, which deals with, uh, you know, internet sellers now have to collect sales tax. Mm. And I was wondering if that possibly has any effect on how um, jurisdiction works for primarily online companies, do you think?
1: Well, Supreme Court has never, go back on the civil procedure side.
0: Yeah,
1: The Supreme Court has never had a case on personal jurisdiction about the internet. And it's good that they haven't in one way, because they tend to screw up PJ every time they touch (laughs) it. You know, They'll solve the specific case in front of them, but they can never seem to land on a consistent coalition of five or more justices who have a steady view of what personal jurisdiction means both on the specific PJ side and on the general jurisdiction side. They've narrowed uh, jurisdiction Mm -hmm. a little bit in the last couple of years. They pretty much have limited general jurisdiction to domicile or something very, very close to it. Right. Where you're from, where you're at home is the, yeah. the buzzword. Um, I could see the internet stuff. I could see the Supreme Court getting right a case where there were minimum contacts and the web was being used to target or kind of you know reach out to a particular jurisdiction. Mm-hmm. Something happened. Uh, closely connected to those internet contacts, and then the the case was brought there, not where the defendant was. And I could see the Supreme Court going, okay, I get it, right? We've always required minimum contacts. They can be through the web. They can be through TV advertising. They can be through driving a bus with your salesman. So I think they'd get that right. I don't think they have any appreciation for the actual technology, and I'm afraid they would get lost in the metaphysics of where is the internet.
0: Yeah, I just remember those questions coming up during class, and when I was reading that case, I was thinking, you know, that uh, being able to collect sales tax might sort, somehow alter the minimum contacts that uh, a corporation might have. But I don't know if it's Boy, really to, any different than the shipping, and I know it comes down to advertising a lot too. So, the,
1: Yeah, I think the, the, the lower courts have – done a decent job of incorporating the shift to web-based commerce as one way that you can reach out to a, a jurisdiction and have it be fair to be sued there. But the Supreme Court hasn't gotten that. And uh, again, they make me nervous. Uh, they're all super smart people. Almost all of them grew up in a pre-internet era, and almost all of them are older than I am, so yeah. really are not technologically <laughs> gifted, nor, nor am I.
0: Yeah, well, that's, I don't even want to get started on where the internet exists. But <laughs> um yeah. Do you think um, that's probably something the next generation of judges is going to have to deal more with just because uh, I know the judge or the court sort of follows trends more than they make them? So
1: I, I, I think so. I, my best guess is when we get to the next case, it will be something that is international based. Because by and large, if you have web contacts between Illinois and Indiana and you're arguing PJ, mm-hmm. you also have just traditional on-the-ground yeah. contacts. So those cases are a little bit less interesting. I am kind of would be looking for one of our international trading partners where the majority of the uh, reaching out, the um, targeting, came through, through, through Internet. Um, and you know, hopefully you'll get a, a nice coherent case rather than one of those uh, decisions where you get a result, that you get seven different opinions, and you have to add them up yeah. in different coalitions.
0: Yeah, those cases are especially frustrating for those of us who have to read them all. But, so I would definitely appreciate coherent cases.
1: They're frustrating for professors too. But you know, <laughs> we've we've learned to. I think it's even worse in the common law area, where you get these hundred a couple hundred page opinions, yes. of which there are up to nine <laughs> different voices being heard, and oh, you yeah. have to figure out where the you know you have to add them up to five to get the, to get the holding and by the way yes. that is that's a tradition in in english jurisprudence where each of the judges at least historically i'm not sure of the current practice each of the the justices of what's now their supreme court would give an individual opinion oh and you you had to just do all the counting and and do all yeah, the do melding some. to see what oh. the real holding was of the group of them
0: well i'm did not know that, but I'm certainly glad that America made the change, For generally we just have an opinion, a dissent, maybe a concurrence or two.
1: But. Those, those are the good ones, and fortunately, you know, the vast majority of the Supreme Court cases are not that divisive. If you yeah. look at them, there's a huge number of cases that are 7 to 2, 8 to 1 or unanimous. Yeah. Uh, there was a recent perfectly sensible, completely unanimous decision in uh, an international antitrust case that was just decided two months ago and you it's twelve pages long and you read it and you go, Yeah, okay.
0: Yeah. Unfortunately I don't think those are the best teaching moments, nope. so we don't really get to read those. A <laughs> those lot. are not the
1: ones that make the case book very often.
0: Yeah. All right. Well that pretty much wraps up anything I wanted to talk about. Is there anything else you wanted to touch on today? Well you're sitting here?
1: Um, you know it's uh, it's it's a pleasure to be here. Um, I, I'm lucky enough to have you know, worked in different areas of the law, in different institutions at different times in my life, and I, I've really enjoyed them all. I would just say this. For people who are uh, seriously interested in teaching as a career, I would just urge them to do two things. Um, it's, it's not easy. We don't really have the summers off, despite what oh, people say yeah. and tease us about. But I would say this. Uh, we hire people because we predict they're going to be good at teaching and research and they're decent human beings that you know will contribute to the life of the institution. Mm-hmm. Those are the things we care about. So if someone thinks that is a path for them, the best way they can pursue this, and I'm happy to chat with anybody who has any questions, uh, but the best way to prove that you're gonna be good at teaching is to teach. Be an adjunct, yeah. uh, teach in another area, but show that you actually like it and you're mm-hmm. good at it. How you're gonna prove you're gonna be a lifelong scholar, get started on something Simple. Everybody understands if you're working 2,000 or more hours in a law firm, yeah. you don't have time to write a 110-page treatise about Hegel and the Uniform Commercial Code. But <laughs> you can start with something that you've worked on, and uh, most hiring committees get that you'll, have, you'll do better when you have more time. But you're not a credible candidate unless you've done some teaching or shown some other way that you're going to be good at it, or without writing writing or showing somehow that despite yeah. you've never written, you're gonna be awesome at it. Uh-huh. Um, you know, hopefully you're just a good person, that's gonna come through too. But teaching, because you know we don't exist without our students, right. and scholarship, because we're not a very interesting community without it. So those are the yeah. things I hope people-
0: Great, thank you. I think that's actually really good advice for pretty much anything you wanna get started on. You know, start small, show that you can do something, yep. and just, you know, do your best. So uh, thank you, and I know that you are, um, Probably my most active law professor on Twitter. So do you want to share your Twitter handle in case people want to follow? Sure,
1: up? <laughs> um, you can follow me at S. Weber Waller. That's S. W. E. B. E. R. W. A. L. L. E. R.
0: Great. So um, thanks for joining us today.
1: Oh, well, thank you. It's been a blast. Thanks.
0: For listening to this episode of Bridging Chicago as produced by the SATC Solution Center. As always, feel free to reach out to us on social media with your comments and suggestions. You can email us at solutioncenter@satcltd.com. at Find us on Twitter and Instagram where our handle is at Bridging Chicago. And don't forget to rate, subscribe, and comment on iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you listen to this podcast. Nothing contained in this podcast shall constitute financial, investment, legal, and or professional advice. No professional relationship of any kind is created between you and the podcast host or guests. You are urged to speak with your financial, investment, or legal advisors before making any investment or legal decisions. Furthermore, the opinions expressed in this podcast are not necessarily the opinions of the SATC Solutions Center, Shank Tepper-Campbell, or any of its employees. This podcast is created by the host and guests' individual capacities. All opinions on this podcast are or have been rendered based on specific facts, under certain conditions and are subject to certain assumptions and may not and should not be used or relied upon for any other purpose including but not limited to or use in or in connection with any investment purposes or legal proceeding.